I have the great privilege of um, introducing our speaker today. Um, I'm going to start by reading his official bio. Micah Kephart is a husband, father, pastor, worship leader, and founder of Poetis International, a nonprofit organization committed to pursuing justice for the marginalized. After spending eight years in worship ministry, he was confronted with the vastness of poverty in the two-thirds world. His passion is to connect the church's deep gladness with the world's deep need. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit what I know about him. Um, Micah is an IW alum. He has an amazing heart for the sick, the poor, the orphan, the girl caught in sex trafficking, the hungry, the AIDS-stricken. He is an innovator in the field of missiology, and I believe that others will be following his lead for years to come. He is a leader that has put an amazing team of individuals together, both here in the States as well as in Africa. Since 2012, Mike and I have spent many weeks in Africa together. He is my friend and someone who inspires me every day to focus on those in need and to use my gifts, whatever those may be, to point to the saving grace, knowledge, and hope of Jesus Christ. Micah. Thanks so much, Professor Flanagan. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, this is a great turnout for a chapel that was allegedly canceled. So thanks for showing up. Uh, my name is Micah Kephart, and it's amazing to be here and encounter many of the people who were so formative uh, in my calling in life, and um, it's great to be on this stage with you here this morning. I'm the founder and CEO of Poetis International. Since 2009, we have been pursuing justice with the bottom billion uh, in southern Africa, namely Zambia, South Africa, Lesotho, and what we want to see is we want to see the rule and reign of Jesus Christ here on earth. We want to see his kingdom come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven with the poor. We want to see transformation. We want to see right and just relationships. And if that means providing a school scholarship for an orphan, if that means uh, providing a skill for a widow so that she can take care of her family, if it means teaching music to vulnerable children, empowering the local church to meet local needs, that's what we want to do to see transformation. Now, when I was born, uh, I was uh, supposed to be Megan. And when my parents realized that they weren't having their beautiful daughter, they named me Micah. And as soon as I was named Micah, my grandfather had the audacity to choose a life verse for me. Who gives anybody the right to choose a life verse for such an innocent, vulnerable baby? Anybody experience that? Okay, so, and if you are, be careful what you choose. I couldn't he have chosen, like, a scripture that has to do with, like, financial prosperity. Much land, many homes, many wives. <laughs> I'm kidding. One is more than I can handle. It's okay, my wife's not watching. <laughs> but he chose Micah 6.8. And I got to be honest, I had no idea what that scripture meant. 
Uh, when I was a student here, I had some of the richest experiences of my life, and you're having them now. I was an elementary education major. I was involved in the university chorale. Master's praise. Come on, man. But even then, I didn't understand my life verse. When I graduated, I, I went into local church and spent the majority of my local church ministry as a worship pastor, even as a worship pastor, a pastor. I didn't understand my life verse, Micah 6.8. And it wasn't until I went to Zambia in 2005 and I was confronted with profound injustice did I begin to understand what it meant to act justly. I was in Zambia's capital, Lusaka, and uh, we were in an incredibly impoverished compound. And we were doing home-based care, and we found ourselves in a woman's home who was basically on her deathbed. She had tuberculosis and malaria. She's infected with HIV, which destroyed her immune system. And her caregiver asked her, uh, how would you want these white people to minister to you? And she knew that uh, we were a group of musicians. I was a worship pastor at the time. And she said, I'd love for them to sing for me. And I'm like, really? I mean, talking about feeling inadequate. Of all your needs, you want me to sing a song. And so I began to sing over this lady. And as I began to sing songs of hope and light and love, I couldn't reconcile those realities with the injustice of this situation. You see, her husband was unfaithful. He contracted HIV, came home, infected her, and then when she became sick, he abandons her to be home raising six kids as she's sick and dying. And in that moment, a sleeping giant of justice woke up in my heart. You know, I feel like I, justice comes easy for me. But I'm not here to talk about justice this morning. I'm here to talk about something that does not come easy for me. Loving mercy. It's ironic that I'm the one delivering a message on something that's so difficult for me in giving mercy. And so what I want to do is I want to make some observations about this massive word. In the Hebrew, it's chesed. And it's very difficult to translate this word into one English word. And so I want to make some observations about how it's used a few different places in the Hebrew text. Uh, it's used 248 times in the Old Testament, half of which are in the Psalms. Most of the time it's translated mercy, but it's also translated kindness, loving kindness, and goodness. The first time we see chesed show up is in Genesis 19. Lot and a handful of righteous people are rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot says, Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great chesed in saving my life. Nearly every time it's used in Genesis, it's about God's chesed in literally saving 
someone's life. Where there's chesed, there's rescue. There's also chesed in human relationships. In Genesis 47, Jacob asked Joseph with that strange hand-on-thigh thing that we can't fully understand, to swear to him that he would be buried in the land that God had promised Abraham. Joseph showed him that chesed. And so there's kindness in human relationships. There's also reciprocity. The book of Joshua, Rahab, and the spies. The spies were delivered. They were saved. They exited the window by the scarlet cord. And because of that, their lives were saved. Rahab and her family were saved. So where there's chesed, there's reciprocity of kindness and relationships. In Psalms, there's salvation of life and soul. The steadfast love of Yahweh that never ceases. In Isaiah, we find it linked to the Davidic covenant. Jeremiah and Daniel say that it's because of covenant chesed that Israel is still alive. And so maybe one of the best ways to try to define this term is this way. It's a covenant term. Wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God. Love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty, in short, acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirements of duty. And chesed between people, relationships, acts of extreme kindness that seems to go beyond duty and arising from personal affection and love. But you know, there's one aspect of chesed that I have such a hard time reconciling with God's commitment to justice. And it's this. In Exodus 34, and again in Numbers, Yahweh describes himself a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, chesed, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, chesed, for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We are so undeserving. Israel was so undeserving of mercy. And God's commitment to justice is unwavering, but it seems God's yearning for his people are stronger still. And so my question this morning is, which comes first? Justice or mercy? The chicken or the egg? What comes first for you? And when you heard about the tragedy of the Blackburn family, what did you experience first? Justice or mercy? When you hear about the events of Paris, what do you experience first? Justice or mercy? 
Rashi, an 11th century Jewish commentator, said that God gave precedence to the rule of mercy and joined it with the rule of justice. God's demand for righteousness is insistent and it's always at the maximum intensity. The loving kindness of God means that his mercy must be greater than that. Hesed does not compromise God's integrity or justice. He still punishes sin. However, he's compelled to show mercy, delay punishment, and forgive iniquity. Where there's the chesed of God, there's forgiveness. Now, just as I was introduced to God's passion and commitment to justice when I was in Zambia, I was also taken to school a few months ago on what it means to love mercy. I met a friend of mine, and uh, to protect her identity, we're just going to call her Grace, and you'll see why. I sat down with her and uh, listened to her story. Uh, she's 21. At the age of six, uh, she was orphaned, uh, double orphan, lost both of her parents. And she was sent to live with her uncle and cousin. And she shared through tears from the age of six to nine. Uh, she was sexually abused almost daily by her uncle. Uh, when she was nine, she escaped that version of hell for another version of hell. She became a street kid and did whatever she could to fend for herself and to survive. When she was 18, she met a group of friends that introduced her to a business where she could generate some money, uh, put herself in school, feed herself, maybe even have a home. That business was unfortunately prostitution. And so for three years, my friend Grace was victimized and objective, objective, objectified by men for money daily. In the course of being a prostitute, she became pregnant and had a baby. And she said that many times her work would force her to leave home and there was no one to care for her child, and so she would leave her baby girl at home. She came home one day only to discover that her two-year-old baby girl had been sexually abused. There it is. Justice. You see, I desperately in that moment wanted to show grace what a godly husband is supposed to look like, what a godly father is supposed to look like. That's primary justice, but also secondary justice welled up in my heart. I wanted to rectify her situation. And in that moment, I said, God, I think I understand your commitment to justice. And he said, you have no idea how passionate I am about justice. You see, Micah, when Grace lost her parents at the age of six, I was with her. 
And from the ages of six to nine, when she was sexually abused by her uncle, I was with her. And when she was on the the streets fending for herself every day, I was with her. And every day she's objectified by men for money. I was with her. And even on the day that her baby girl, Micah, my daughter, was abused, I was with her. You have no idea how my heart burns for justice. But here's what you can't accept. I love mercy. And if those men would believe and receive, I would be gracious. I just couldn't accept it. I just couldn't accept it. And I realized in that moment I can't accept it because I have such a distorted view of my own lostness, my own need for grace. I'm not that bad of a guy. I'm not like them. I've never abused anybody. I've never exploited anybody. I realize I honestly think I don't need grace as much as them. And I asked Grace, how do you feel about these men? And she said, well, I've been angry. I've been bitter. I've been depressed. But ultimately, I've forgiven them. I said, why? How? She said, Micah, because I've been forgiven. And where there's forgiveness, there's freedom. The only way that we can begin to reconcile God's justice with God's mercy is to realize that justice came once and for all through mercy. God sent his son to die on the cross and to to be raised again. The perfect lamb breaking himself open, pouring himself out for all people that if anyone believes or receives, they might be presented just and righteous before God. Everyone My need for grace is no less or more than anybody else. We are all in need of the grace of God. And when we receive the grace of God, we are called and compelled to show mercy to others that justice might be served. We not only see this in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we see it in his ministry. We see that so many times he interacted with the lives of the poor, and I have learned some of the richest spiritual lessons in my life in working with the poor. I believe that Jesus had a preferential option for the poor. I don't know, maybe it's because they were more receptive to the kingdom of heaven. 
But I think another reason is that he was inviting us into a story that is just as much about what we need as it is about the needs of the poor. We need the poor in our lives to learn about God's commitment to justice, to learn about his passion for mercy. Matthew 9 says, Jesus went through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. That word compassion is amazing because in the root of the word, it's about bowels. I'm not joking. It's about violent movements of love that comes from your innermost being. Jesus loved the poor. He loved the downtrodden. He loved the voiceless. He loved the, the oppressed, and he came to set them free. I've been invited into that story, and it's been a beautiful story. I want to invite you into the same because maybe there's aspects of God's justice and mercy that he wants you to understand. And many times we learn that from the poor. Grace and so many like her come to us through an initiative called Beat the Drum. Beat the Drum is a film um, that we show all over Southern Africa in schools and it's a film that unravels uh, myths and misinformation about HIV and AIDS. In narrative form, it talks about the realities of trafficking and exploitation. But it's a values teaching tool. Every character in the movie represents a godly Christ-like value like trustworthiness, integrity, honesty. And it takes so many volunteers to implement this program. Uh, we want to reach 10 to 15,000 kids from June to July 2016. It's going to take 300 volunteers to reach that many people. 150 come from all over Africa. And we're trusting God for 150 whiteies. Not necessarily whiteies. That's something we use all the time when I'm in Zambia. It's okay. I didn't mean to say that. Sometimes I forget where I am. All ethnicities. We need 150 from the United States. That's a better way to say it. <laughs> to be a part of this program. And so you're paired with an African, they actually call themselves blackies. I'm not joking. <laughs> I just need to be careful what conversations I have in certain situations. Sorry about that. You'll be paired with an African leader. And for a week, you'll be trained 
with them in community, in worship, in prayer, on a curriculum that we teach in the schools. And then you'll be paired two by two to go into the schools and reach 10 to 15,000 African youth. And halfway into this program, we have the African youth in the schools write an anonymous letter to a character in the movie. His name is Francis. We call him Dear Francis Letters. And you would not believe the realities that we find in these letters. How common Grace's story is. And when we find these letters, we are able to respond in these communities and get the help and the support that these individuals need. And maybe God's stirring in your heart, hopefully 150 of you at least, that God's saying, I want you to see a side of my justice and mercy that you don't know about right now. Because you're insulated from people that I care deeply about. And it's just as much for you as it is for them. If God's stirring in your heart, we've got an opportunity for you this summer to experience some of the things that I'm talking about. And maybe God will show his mercy in a new way as we love mercy and see justice come to the world through mercy. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you, though we are undeserving, that we've experienced your grace, your unmerited favor. I pray that we would know that as we receive it, it's not just for ourselves. To follow the example of your son, to break ourselves open, to pour ourselves out on behalf of the lost and the least in the world. And I believe with all my heart that when we do that, we not only are laborers, we not only go into the harvest, but we are transformed in the process into the likeness of your Son. I pray that this week you would give a vision to these young people about your persistent passion for justice and your profound love for mercy in our world. That as we're transformed, the world would be transformed. It's in Jesus' name we pray.